on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Wednesday the 11th of May. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. The head of the World Health Organization has warned that China's zero-Covid strategy is unsustainable. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said on Tuesday, As we all know, the virus is evolving, changing its behaviors, becoming more transmissible. With that changing behavior, changing your measures will be very important. He added, considering the behaviour of the virus, I think a shift in China's strategy will be very important. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam said Tuesday that Hong Kong will ask authorities in mainland China what the city must do in order to start quarantine-free travel. She said that last year, one of the prerequisites was no local infections for a while. She said incoming leader John Lee would need to revisit the prerequisites for resuming quarantine-free travel with mainland China including whether the city should continue to aim for zero infections. She also confirmed the SAR would take further steps to exit the fifth wave of infections on Thursday next week. The head of Germany's central bank, the Bundesbank, has called on the European Central Bank to raise interest rates in July. Joachim Nagel warned in a speech on Tuesday of the growing risk that policymakers act too late and are forced into a strong and abrupt increase in borrowing costs. Elon Musk said yesterday he would reverse Twitter's decision to ban former US President Donald Trump from the platform, describing the decision as morally wrong and flat-out stupid. Mr Musk, who has agreed to buy the social media platform for 44 billion US dollars, said the decision made in the wake of the January 6 riots following Mr Trump's election loss had alienated a large part of the country. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Louis Coyce at S&P Global Ratings, Nissin Dialdus from Mandarin Capital, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks wobbled between gains and losses ahead of key consumer price inflation data later today, which is expected to come in slightly below March's 8.5% and could signal that inflation has reached a peak. The S&P 500 closed a quarter of a percent higher at 4,001, recovering the 4,000 level that it lost on Monday for the first time since March 2021. The Dow at one stage was up 500 points and then down 350 points before closing lower for a fourth day, dipping 85 points to 32,161. The Nasdaq Composite gained 1% to close at 11,738. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 0.7%. London's FTSE 100 added 0.4%. Hong Kong shares slumped on reopening Tuesday after the public holiday the previous day before recovering some of the losses in the afternoon session. The Hang Seng Index was down over 4% at the low of the day before rebounding to close 1.8% or 368 points lower at an almost two-month low of 19,634. The Hang Seng Tech Index tumbled 3.2%, led by Xpeng Motor, which was down almost 10%, and JD.com, which was off over 8%. 
Shares of other Chinese car makers sold off after the report of, a, of Tesla suspending production in Shanghai. Neo dived over 10% and the auto was down 6.6%. Major indices in mainland China moved from negative territory into positive territory as the national team stepped in to rally the market. The Shanghai Composite rose 1.1% to 3,036, having been down as much as 1.5% earlier in the day. In Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex price index recovered from losses of almost 2% to end the day 2.2% higher. The world's largest investment manager, BlackRock, abandoned its bullish call on Chinese assets on Monday, downgrading the mainland's stock and bonds to neutral from modest overweight. BlackRock, BlackRock analysts said that while policymakers have talked, they've yet to fully act on preventing the economic slowdown. And one other market to note, the Philippine Stock Exchange Index ended 0.6% lower at a nine-month low of 6,721. Following the election of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. as president, it fell as much as 3.1% earlier in the day. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 3.5%. It's at $101.59 a barrel. Gold is 0.8% lower at $1,839 an ounce. Treasury yields eased from multi-year highs and the 10-year Treasury notes dropped below 3% after hitting its highest level since late 2018 on Monday. It's currently four basis points lower at 2.99%. And the euro is trading at $1.05. The bucks at 130.3 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.23 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 67 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.74 and a half in offshore markets against the dollar. And Bitcoin is 1% lower at 31,000. Around Asian Pacific stock markets, which are just opening up, uh, the SX200 is flat right now. The Nikkei 225 down slightly off 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea also off 0.1%. And futures markets pointing for a loss of 200 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.09 and a half. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Morning, Louis. Morning, Peter. And also over in our Queensway studio, we have Nitin Dialdas, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Welcome back, Nitin. Thank you. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., I'm certain we will find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Your guess is correct. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Well, let me start with you then. Global, global stocks, they have stabilised, but everyone waiting uh, for this key consumer price inflation data coming out later uh, this morning. Um, Barry, give us a sense, first of all, of how significant this data is going to be and what we should be looking for. Well, when you've got 8.5% inflation, the highest since 1981, obviously it's getting a lot of attention. Fuel prices are very high, and that's what people are talking about. The expectation, Peter, is that um, the CPI could come in at a much lower level than it was a month earlier, maybe two-tenths of one percent for April. But that would still, of course, keep the 12-month CPI at a, you know, well above eight percent. But you have to remember that in March, the CPI was up 1.2 percent just for the month alone. Mm. Inflation is the big problem, and... Uh, 
President Biden spoke about it just a few hours ago. Janet Yellen spoke about it. They're optimistic that it's peaked. But I think most uh, analysts who are outside the administration say, where's the evidence? We don't see that it's peaked as yet. Do you think it has? Are you seeing any signs at all over there? Because people are feeling this, aren't they? When it's things like fuel and food that are going up, people really notice it. And it sort of makes inflation expectations become even more entrenched. Absolutely. No, I don't think people see any sign of diminishing inflation. Look, you can be an optimist and say, well, it hasn't really spread through the economy. You don't see workers demanding big price increases to keep pace. That hasn't happened yet. But I think the key driver is going to be the fuel price, the oil price. Oil came down in New York trading below $100. That's probably a good sign. But we'd have to see that for several months to have any sense that inflation has peaked. Louis, and listen, what, what are your thoughts? This is clearly going to be key data coming out later today. It's going to have an impact around the world, probably, isn't it, in terms of what markets do? Yeah, Peter, so uh, indeed, inflation in the US and globally has become probably you know, one of the, the most uh, looked at variable. What, when we thought about this nine months ago, most experts thought that it would, sp it would spike up and then very quickly come down. And what has become clear it is, is that it is more sticky and at a higher level than what everybody had expected. And the big question is, will it come down still, you know, relatively fast? Or will it continue? If, if it will continue for a few more years, then it will indeed become entrenched. So it is really a very difficult job for the Fed now, who has been a bit behind the curve, to kind of make up and persuade everybody that it will be willing to be aggressive enough and, and, and contain this. We've got a lot of things going on at the same time, haven't we, that are sort of really um, aiding this high inflation. We've got the lockdowns in China, the disruptions of global supply chains, the war in Ukraine, which is sending commodity prices higher. Not a lot of sign that any of these problems are going to go away anytime soon. No, not at all. And um, I think that's been the big problem. Uh, obviously, a lot of the inflation has been driven by the oil price and the gas prices. But um, there is the supply chain issues, and I don't see China opening up at least for the next year, maybe nine months if we're optimistic. Um, so, yeah, I think um, inflation's here to stay, and it's a question of how the Fed can catch up now. And if, if, if the market isn't, go if China isn't going to open up uh, for, the, for the rest of the year, the disruption to global supply chains is, is going to get even worse, isn't it? You know, Peter, on. I know at the moment we have significant issues in China, you know, in the in the Yangtze River Delta and elsewhere with global supply chains. I personally would argue that the the contribution of Chinese supply chains to global inflation hasn't been as big as as many people think. It's really a question of, especially in the U.S. Uh, governments having pumped up demand as the economy is recovering from 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 COVID, and then higher energy and, uh, and and food prices and now this big question of is it going to, you know we see lots of evidence of firms passing it on and then who, mm. who receives it passing it on again so the big question is really within our own western economies whether we will see w the kind of wage price spirals that have given inflation a bad name 
When you say that you're not, you don't think the disruption to supply chains is as big as maybe some people are, are saying, there, there are definitely those firms, aren't they, that are reporting problems with Tesla. Um, it's taking, you know, what used to take three to four weeks to get parts. Uh, is now saying it's taking over 20 weeks. So something surely is going wrong somewhere. No, absolutely. At the moment, we have significant supply chains disruptions. But what I meant is that over the last two years, looking at this whole COVID period, I think that, um, you know, in China, demand has been a bigger problem than supply. Mm. Barry, what, what, does the Fed know um, how high um, it's got to raise rates to control inflation? Because all, all we hear is that, you know, we've had a 50 basis point rate hike. We're going to have another one uh, at the next meeting. Has the Fed got any sense of how far it needs to go? Well, we'll have to look at the next dot plots when they come out. But I think the short answer to your question is, no, they don't. They are going to try to get the Fed funds rate back to neutral. But if you've got inflation at 8% and you've just raised the Fed funds rate to 1%, <laughs> you've got a long way to travel. If I can just circle back to what Peter uh, Nissen and Louis, Louis were saying about uh, inflation. When you've got oil and food, those are the two basics. I spoke about oil and I don't see any diminution in the oil price coming soon. Look at food. We've seen wheat, cotton. We've, cotton of course not a food, but we've seen corn, we've seen soybeans. And if you look then at the war in Ukraine, 30% of wheat exports come out of Russia and Ukraine through the Black Sea. Those are cut off. That's why we're seeing such rapid food price hikes in Egypt and, of course, North Africa. I think this is a huge problem. And like with oil, I don't see any early diminution. And one other thing on energy. In Europe, they're going to raise interest rates in July, and they've had a 500% increase in natural gas prices. You know, this is a recipe for recession, and I think that's the direction they're heading. Do you agree, Nitin and uh, Louis? Are you, are you seeing recessions ahead? Yeah, um, it's a tough call to say that now. I mean, obviously, the economies are going to have a bad patch. And I think a large part of it will be how quickly they can resolve the Russia-Ukraine issue. And I, I don't think anyone sees an end anytime soon, but does it continue for three months? Does it continue for six months? Does it continue to that for, for years? And I think that's the X factor, and that's going to decide whether it goes into recession or not. And then secondly, can they find substitute gas uh, uh, supply? And, and that's another big part that they need to figure out as well. You know, Peter, before we get too gloomy, um, when, when I talk with my colleagues uh, in the U.S. and Europe, they definitely see headwinds. And, you know, and absolutely, you know, as Barry points out, on inflation, the story looks pretty grim. But on activity, you know, like are our factories running, are people, especially are people, you know, doing their normal daily life and spend, um, things are not looking that bad in both the U.S. and Europe. So my colleagues would be a bit cautious in terms of, uh, you know, are we really heading for a, for a recession? They, they, they do not yet see that. Think, well, I think, sorry, if I, sorry to interrupt, but I think, I mean, I've just come back from the UK, as you know, and it's buzzing over there. And it's because they've opened up for the first time in two years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's got to play a role as well in helping the economy, where 
all of a sudden where people have been locked down for two years, they're now being given the opportunity to travel again, to go out, live a normal life, and they're taking full advantage. So you're seeing a real buzz in the UK. I can tell you that from experience over there. Are you seeing the same thing in the US, Barry? Are people are really now that the, the economy is really fully opened and uh, are people taking advantage of that? Yes, yes, they are. I think Nitin's perspective is very valuable. I mean, why Britain is booming more than the continent is an open question, particularly when you see these grim economic forecasts for the UK and the absence of a trade agreement with, with the continent. But uh, travel both domestically and to Europe from the US is booming. And I think it's also fair to say that the US economy is booming, even though we had this you know, first quarter downturn. There's still tremendous labor shortages. So you know, this is an economy that wants to grow. So mm. I guess that tempers my own pessimism somewhat. Well, what does this all mean for the markets then? Because the markets are definitely pretty gloomy at the moment, aren't they? We've seen a significant repricing in both equities and bonds this year, significant losses in, in both markets. Um, are the markets maybe too gloomy, do you think, given that you know, the economic data, while it, it's weakening, it, it's certainly not in recession yet? I don't know. Um, markets until recently were, of course, uh, the opposite of gloomy, and maybe this is just a bit of a correction. <laughs> You're uh, right. Uh, so hey, Peter, you know I've been saying this for two years. It's finally selling off, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's taken a long That's time, true. isn't it? It's taken a long time, but yeah. Um, I just thought they were a bit overpriced, so we are getting a correction, probably back to normalization. And that's coinciding with interest rates rising, obviously, and I think they should normalize as well. It, it is a yeah, bit look. Peter, I, I was just going to add to what Nitin is saying. I mean, look, uh, we have had essentially in most areas of the world economy incredible growth since the end of the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9. We had a brief dip at the beginning of 2020, but it was very brief. So all the good times are probably behind us because we're now in what is everywhere, except for China, an interest rate tightening cycle. That slows economic growth to tackle inflation. So the markets are telling us the good times are over. Maybe they're going to bounce back, but I think the real question is, we don't know how long the market decline is going to persist and whether that really does portend an economic decline. My own guess is, certainly in Europe, yes. It's interesting, Louis, talk, talking about the uh, China, their, their monetary policy seems to be heading in a different direction from the US, similar for Japan as well, isn't it? We've got two major uh, central banks here that, that are starting to, to diverge quite significantly from what the Fed is doing and, and what maybe the ECB might be doing soon. Yeah, that's a really interesting issue at the moment, Peter. These, uh, these two central banks and, and their policies, which so clearly... Um, diverge from what the Fed is doing. We see, of course, the different implication in these two markets. In, 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 in Japan, how it has been reflected in is the very significant weakening of the yen. In China, uh, we've seen some weakening of the RMB, but it's, it's, it's not that much. It, in China, of course, monetary policy is not just run via the, via the interest rate, and we have quantitative ways in which uh, the authorities can, can support credit growth and there are ways that the PBOC can use to kind of lean against exchange rate uh, movements. So yeah, this is really something quite interesting and it probably won't 
uh, change uh, very very soon. This is, is it sustainable? Do you think because it, it's getting worse and worse, isn't it? This divergence, it's getting quite extreme. Yeah, it's getting extreme, but it's not the first time that we've seen those types of things. You know, it, it, it used to be if you have large economies with different economic cycles, you do expect different monetary policy. Mm. The, the head of the World Health Organization, he warned yesterday that China's zero COVID strategy is unsustainable. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said, as we all know, the virus is evolving, changing its behaviors, becoming more transmissible. With that changing behavior, changing all measures will be very important. When we talk about the zero COVID strategy in China, we don't think it's sustainable. And he added, considering the behavior of the virus, I think a shift in China's strategy will be very important. Um, this is quite unusual, isn't it? You've, it's very rare that the WHO Director uh, General challenges a member state's domestic uh, COVID policies. But is he right to, to do so? Do you think he's right that it is unsustainable? I think in the long run it is unsustainable. But you've got to look at each country's demographics and, and what they've got. And the problem with China is they don't have a hospital system that can sustain what most of the rest of the world has gone through where you have a massive spike in, in COVID cases and with that, without that hospital system they have to work a system that will fit for them and manage the hospitalizations of, of, of their people um, most of the rest of the world are getting on with the rest of their lives because they've had this massive spike they've, the hospitals have dealt with it and now we're just living with it um, but I think in China that's, the big key, that's a big key is can they can the, hospitalize, uh, can the hospital system actually afford to have that spike? And at the moment, I don't think it can. Barry, what, what do you make of this? I mean, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus has been accused in the past of being too deferential uh, to China, and here he is now speaking out uh, <laughs> You're right. about their COVID strategy. Uh, it's quite unusual, isn't it? Well, it is unusual. I, I, look, uh, Mr. Tedros is not the most popular man in North America. He's had a lot of complaints about what the United States was doing, particularly at the onset of, of this crisis. And uh, it has to be remembered, he's not a medical doctor. Uh, he does run a vast bureaucracy. I, I think that uh, it's bravo that he is being uh, even-handed in his complaints. But uh, whether he's right or not, I leave to smarter men than I. Louis, there's a noticeable difference now, isn't there, between what President Xi Jinping is saying in his speeches and Premier Li Keqiang. Xi Jinping is focusing very much on maintaining this zero COVID policy and saying it mustn't be criticised or, or questioned. He doesn't mention at all these days the economic consequences. Whereas Premier Li Keqiang is doing the opposite. He's giving more and more dire warnings about the impact of this policy on the economy. He said on Saturday, uh, the employment situation in Shanghai and Beijing is complicated um, and grave. How, how serious is the situation, Louis? Well, I think the economic situation is, is pretty serious. I mean, we have seen a huge amount of economic pain in April, was laid bare by the PMI data and other data that we are getting out. Also, yesterday's trade data was, was, was pretty weak. So, yes, the economy is being hit very significantly. And, of course, uh, Prime Minister Li Keqiang, he, his main responsibility is the economy. So he is, you know, he's focusing on, on that and seeing that. And what do you make of that trade data? Because it's, it's important, isn't it? Because uh, trade is about a third of uh, GDP in China. So, 
you know, external trade is important. It's important for China. It's also important for the world, as we talked about before, in terms of, you know, we, we all in the West uh, rely on, on Chinese goods and, and supply chains rely on it. So this is an issue. If, if this lasts for, you know, more than uh, a few weeks, this will increasingly become problematic both for China and, and for the world. Is it, is it not, it's not just the lockdowns though, is it here? Although obviously they've contributed, it seems to suggest when exports uh, slow down so significantly, there's a problem with global demand as well. Yeah, I, people, some people say that. I'm, I'm personally not so sure of that because if you look at, you know, so some people say, look, Chinese exports are weakening because global demand is slowing. And definitely global demand is not rising as fast anymore as it was last year. But, but we wouldn't expect such a sudden uh, deceleration as, as we saw in China's uh, April trade data, especially mm. not if the neighbors, South Korea and Taiwan, still have pretty good export data. Nissin, what do you make of Chinese markets? We're seeing a huge effort on the part of the Chinese leadership and the, uh, the central bank and the regulators to try and talk these markets up uh, on the mainland. You've got the national team intervening quite regularly now to try and uh, stem any decline. Do you, do you think of this is going to work? It's, it's difficult. I mean, I think until they fully open up and they get on with their with life again um it's going to be hard to stem this d decline and I, I think the markets should actually be fa uh, allowed to find their natural level mm. having uh, intervention i mean it's never really worked per se um maybe you could go back to 97 say hong kong might have done a decent job but had it f had hong kong found a, a natural level it probably would have recovered quicker as well so i don't know i mean i just think from my perspective you should leave markets to its to its own devices and not not try and intervene. Well, here in Hong Kong, where um, where they are being left to their own um, devices, and we don't have the regulators stepping in to try and support them, um, it, it doesn't seem to have found a bottom yet, does it? Well, I think around nineteen thousand, it seems to find a little bit of support each time. But my question is, where's everyone? I mean, I can't believe how quiet Hong Kong is all of a sudden. And I think that's a pretty good reflection. Where, I mean, the markets are pretty well reflecting that. Well, Carrie Lam was talking yesterday about asking authorities in mainland China what the city must do in order to start quarantine-free travel. Is this going to be the number one priority for the new uh, chief executive, John Lee? Uh, so far, that's what he's saying. And... Start with international. I mean, the rest of the world's open up, so let's open up to them as well. And that doesn't prevent mainland Chinese coming to Hong Kong. They've obviously got to go back and do the quarantine when they go back to mainland China. But at least you can make it a melting pot where the mainland Chinese can get some sort of economic activity by coming through Hong Kong. And you've got the rest of the world dealing through Hong Kong. And it just makes Hong Kong what it should have been right from the beginning. That melting pot of East meets West. Okay, well, thank you very much for your perspectives. That's Nitin Dialdus, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. You also heard Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings and our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Take a trip around Asia-Pacific markets, see what they're up to in Australia. The ASX 200 is down a third of a percent. The Nikkei in Japan is off half a percent. Cosby in South Korea also down. That's off 0.1 percent. 
Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 200 points lower later on this morning. Thank you for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for the news, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast, cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms. Those showers are going to be heavy at times at first. The maximum temperature will be around 28 degrees. There will be showers in the next few days. They're going to be heavy at times with squally thunderstorms and temperatures slightly lower early next week. There is a thunderstorm warning in force at the moment. It's 25 degrees, 95% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Taxi fares are going up, but an industry group has warned that extra charges won't be enough to cover rising costs. From July the 17th, flag fall for urban cabs will be $27. New Territories cabs will charge $23.50, and the fare on Lantau will start at $22. The Hong Kong Taxi and Public Light Bus Association says it was expecting an increase twice as large. Its spokesman, Godwin Ching, says it will apply for a further increase later this month. In the past two years, a lot of costs increased, especially on the insurance and also on the maintenance costs. And even the car price, because they have changed the model and the car price has already increased. So you can think that in the recent years, there's a lot of increase. But finally, the increase just only three does, which we don't think is enough. Sri Lankan security forces have been ordered to shoot on sight anyone looting or damaging public property or causing harm to individuals. The defense ministry issued the order after protesters defied a curfew and continued to call for the resignation of President Kotabaya Rajapaksa. On Monday, his brother Mahinda stepped down as prime minister. Dr. Harini Amorasoria is an opposition MP. That political stability is essential to address the really dire economic crisis that we are facing. So in order to deal with the the political crisis, we think it's essential that the president steps down and also that there's an interim government or some kind of interim arrangement is made as soon as possible. Currently, we've gone for 24 hours without a prime minister or a cabinet in the middle of an economic crisis. This is not how things should be at all. The Marcos dynasty has returned to power in the Philippines, with Ferdinand Marcos Jr. winning Monday's presidential election. His father was deposed in the People Power Revolution in 1986. In a statement released by his official spokesman, Mr. Marcos described his as a victory for democracy and for all Filipinos. He asked to be judged not by his ancestors, but by his actions. This man agreed. All these years we have been hearing that the Marcoses did this, did that. So I think it's not a big deal if we get to know their side of the story, right? We all know that the Marcus's name has been stained years and years ago, but all we want is just to move forward from that and just learn from the past, and I think it is his time. Let's all give him a chance. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has told the Slovak parliament that Russia's war on Ukraine is a war against the entire project for a united Europe. Mr. Zelensky said Russia's attack was not just an attempt to seize Ukraine's land, subjugate its people and erase its identity. Ukraine was just the start. This, he said, was a war against any country that had chosen to live freely and decide its own future. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Jim. 
This morning, we'll be taking a look at the latest developments in, in the epidemic with uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling of the University of Hong Kong. And then after nine o'clock on Backchat, we'll be talking about the presidential election in the Philippines with Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late President Marcos, winning a landslide victory. What were the main factors in the voting? What can we expect from the new...